For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Just because a skill is not mastered doesn't always mean it has to be addressed in a small group setting. This is Susan Lambert, and welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast, brought to you by Amplify. On this episode, we're continuing our Season 7 theme of tackling the hard stuff by taking on another topic that listeners have asked about, how to best use small group instruction. So on this episode, we're going deep into the research on whole and small group instruction. We'll explore some common misconceptions and spend plenty of time on best practices. Our expert guide for this topic is Jamie Peevler, co-director and full-time instructor in the Reading Science Graduate Program at Mount St. Joseph University. After seeing Jamie present about small group instruction, I knew she'd be the perfect guest to discuss the research on this topic and share tips for using group instruction more effectively. Here's my conversation with Jamie Peevler. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Happy to be here. We would love if you'd start out by telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself. How did you manage to get on a science of reading journey? All those things about you. Well, my science of reading journey actually started in 2002, and it's not the same as what a lot of other teachers experienced, where they had this awakening, you know, that they didn't know how to teach reading. I actually had a student tell me I didn't know how to teach reading. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was kind of a, a slap in the face that was, well, it was needed and probably long overdue even at that point in my career. But I was teaching third grade in an inner city school in Indianapolis, and first year ever teaching third grade, but I thought I knew what I was doing. So there's that, you know, confidence that was failing me. (laughs) Um, But I had this student and I, by the way, was their fourth teacher that school year and it was October. So it was a, you know, it was a tough class. Yeah. But uh, Roy was a student who I think of now as a gentle giant and he was my biggest behavior problem. And I, you know, kind of chalked it up to he didn't want to learn how to read. That was our our topic that we were having the most issues with. He was a stellar student in math. But when it came to reading, chairs flew, you know, he would get put out of the classroom, those kinds of things. And one day on the playground, I noticed that he was one of the kindest students because he took it upon himself to help other kids, you know, find a friend group in a really tough environment. Mm 
Hmm. And um, a couple days later of watching him and realizing I didn't know him the way I thought I knew him, I talked to him and asked why he had acted up in reading. And his best buddy, Demetrius, who was a really smart student, came over and said, because you don't know how to teach him. (laughs) So that was my that was my awakening. (laughs) So it took a while before I found the resources that I needed. But that was definitely the moment that put me on the right course. That is crazy. And like uh, listeners can't see my face, but my face just like communicated. Oh, my goodness. That's such a I mean, that speaks volumes to have students first of all, feel empowered to be able to communicate that. But then come on, Jamie, for you to take that and really be reflective about that. Not everybody would do that. It wasn't easy. I can't tell you that happened immediately, but I did a lot of reflecting on, you know what? They're right. I don't know how to teach reading and whatever it is I'm trying to do is not working. So um, just a little bit of a tangent. What is the do you remember the first thing that you did after you, you got that message from your student that you don't know how to teach reading? Yes. I went and talked to the first grade teachers because I thought it was their job to teach reading. Yeah. And um, many of them who were experienced knew that what I was doing was ineffective. Some of them had experience with phonics programs from many, many years ago. That was actually when a teacher handed me the infamous plaid book. Um, for phonics. So I took that plaid book and tried to teach Roy how to read that way. And then the following year, I stumbled onto my first Orton Gillingham course, which was quite accidental. I knew it had something to do with phonics, but that's all I knew. Um, And that really was the big game changer for me. Wow, that's incredible. I have not heard that story from you before. So thank you for for sharing that. That's that's really great. And shout out to Roy and Demetrius. Is that is that right? Correct. Uh, for advocating for his friend, too, um, and setting you off on a journey. Well, this this particular episode um, kind of relates to that, actually, because when we think about helping kids individually, we really often see small group instruction as critical, essential, particularly in these early grades. Um, I'm thinking about as a building administrator and you know, seeing other building administrators, often those instructional observation protocols specifically say, is there small group instruction happening? And, you know, whole group instruction sort of gets a bad rap out of that. Why do you think whole group, let's start there. Why do you think whole group instruction really gets a bad rap? Well, I think it's because many of us aren't doing it as effectively as possible. And I think intuitively people know that. So it's not favored. But I think it gets a bad rap because the ways that we're delivering it now, um, again, are not as effective as they could be. For example, in whole group instruction, typically it's an interaction between the teacher and maybe one student at a time that's being called on. Mm. Um, It oftentimes is the teacher standing in front of the classroom delivering the instruction and trying to do it at a fast enough pace that kids don't have an opportunity to get off task. So I think the way it's delivered does tend to feel less engaging, less interactive, um, less opportunity to really have those meaningful interactions with students. So I think that's where it begins. But again, I, I really think that's a misconception. I think that's really our inability to envision whole group instruction as engaging and interactive and meaningful. And that's probably where I look to Anita Archer for guidance. Mm. Um, If you've ever had the pleasure of seeing her, which I believe you've seen her many times, (laughs) (laughs) when she is in a large group setting, 
you would never think of using the word, you know, boring or slow paced or um, isolated. What you experience is lots of choral responses. And so everybody in the classroom is participating and it feels very much like you're working in a small group setting because of the amount of engagement that's happening. Um, So through choral responses, through increasing opportunities, to get feedback from your students about their level of understanding, whether that's, you know, writing on a whiteboard and holding it up, whether that's, you know, using um, technology and different modalities for showing responses. There are ways that you can increase that engagement. But again, I think the the general reaction is, oh, whole group, not very engaging, limited interaction, boring. Isn't there also this sense that well, if I'm delivering the same thing to every student, not every student needs to have the same thing. So isn't that part two of of this bad rap for whole group instruction? Absolutely. And I think we have this mindset that small group differentiated golden standard. But there's a certain amount of instruction, again, all kids need. And there isn't a lot of difference between those things. And, you know, the way I think about it is just general health. So we're all well off getting exercise and good sleep and a pretty balanced, you know, nutrition type framework to feed ourselves off of. But that's what whole group instruction should be doing, too. There is no need that everyone in the classroom has to have a different comprehension focus in a lesson. Um, We don't all have to have different syntactic awareness. There's a certain amount of proactive, preventative, foundation-building work that should be done for all kids. And we can do that more efficiently in a whole group setting and then reserve that small group setting for what truly needs to be differentiated because not everything has to be differentiated. Hmm. That's a pretty powerful statement and probably gets a little bit of pushback. And I hope by the end of this podcast episode, we can convince our listeners um, that there really is something critical and important about this idea of delivering whole group instruction Um, and the kind of instruction that all students need. But before we get there, what about, so what I hear you not saying, you're not saying that small group instruction is bad, but there must be an optimal balance between whole and small group instruction. How do you, how do you think about that? Oh, that's great. So I like that you said, you know, we've got to really be intentional about how we're structuring whole group and small group, because yes, there is a need for small group. Even when your core instruction is working fabulously, you will still have kids who need something different. So it's really that question that I think we need to have as our guide for balancing out our instructional time. So if we are in a grade level or in an environment where we have a lot of kids that need very specific skills worked on, then we may have to have more small group time. But ideally, that whole group time should be the bulk of our instructional block. And whether you break it down into a certain number of minutes, again, I think is a a hard concept to wrap your brain around because it's really going to be data driven. So let's say that you're in a classroom setting, maybe second grade, and your universal screening data says, you know, less than 60% of your kids are meeting benchmark on a specific skill. Maybe they're really struggling with blending. Do they all need blending in a small group setting? Probably not. 
what I need to do is focus on that skill for everyone. And then the kids who probably are at a very different level than the rest of my group may need that done in a small group setting because their skill is very different um, than the rest of my group. So it's hard to quantify that. It's more a matter of what does my data say? And again, just because a skill is not mastered doesn't always mean it has to be addressed in a small group setting. Hmm. You have a a little, oh, I don't know how to quite how to say this. When you talk about the word mastery, right? You have a very specific focus and definition of what that should look like. And you, I think this is right, based on watching your webinars and seeing and seeing you do uh, talk about this in, in big group situations, we are not completely understanding the concept of mastery and often aren't allowing our students to get there. Do I have that right? You have that right. So it really is based on, the definition that I use is based on Herring and Eaton's work in 1978. And so they define mastery as a four-step process. And when we think about that process as it relates to our instruction and our assessment, I think it really helps guide our decision-making on supporting kids. And those four steps are first acquisition. So do they even understand the skill that we're teaching? And obviously in the beginning, that's going to be bumpy. There'll be more errors initially. So the way we would judge acquisition is amount of accuracy on the skill. So when accuracy is low, they haven't acquired it yet, we'll probably need more practice. Once we've reached that level of accuracy, then we think about stage two, which is acquisition. Uh, is not acquisition, that was stage one, fluency. <laughs> and so fluency is where we take that skill and we become more accurate and more automatic. And oftentimes our assessments stop there. So we assess to fluency, and then we think the students have mastered the skill and we move on. And then not surprisingly, two, three weeks later, they land on our radar again is not having that skill. And that's because we didn't push them to the final level. So level three would be generalization and then we'll get to adaptation. So generalization is really where they can take that skill that we taught them in the environment that we taught it in and then apply it more broadly. And so that again is probably something we never assess to. An example of assessing that might be oral reading fluency because we'll take concepts that we did in our lesson that we know that they can do accurately and automatically, but now we're interleaving them into content that interrupts their train of thought about that skill. So that's an important um, layer to assess mastery on. But that final one of adaptation is really key. And that is, can they take that skill and encounter it in an unexpected situation and modify it somehow, realize that it doesn't apply or bring additional information from prior lessons to the table to get it to fit correctly. So that's how we know students have truly mastered a skill. Hmm. How do you assess at that, that very last level of adaptation? Well, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of times teachers are assessing that and they're assessing it through indirect observations and they just don't realize that that's helpful data. And what that would look like is, you know, we've been doing some spelling concepts and the students have done well on their weekly assessment, but I'm noticing in their writing, they're not actually applying any of those skills that's your ability to assess adaptation. Mm. So seeing that skill in a real live context and judging whether or not they were able to use it correctly 
is probably the most effective way that I know of to assess adaptation. That's great. And it to bring us back to small group instruction, it feels like there is, during that progression, there's data points that we can gather along the way to understand, do I need to help my whole class with this? Do I need to pull a small group together just to ensure that they have the depth of mastery then? I love that word with a new understanding that they need to have to move forward. Um, But it feels like it's challenging. So like, what are some of those challenges then to figure out small groups? How do I use them? How are they effective? What's your suggestion on that? Yeah, so if we think about, again, most of the assessments teachers are currently using assess fluency. So any child that is not performing at an expected level on fluency, they're probably still at the adaptation. I'm going to keep confusing those two at the acquisition (laughs) stage. So they haven't acquired the skill yet. So that means I probably do need to work with them in a small group setting because they are not as far along as their peers are. So where in whole group, I can move to beyond fluency. I can move to generalization for my whole group. My kiddos that have not yet acquired the skill are not benefiting from that work. So I need to work with them in a small group setting and make that instruction more intense for them so that they can actually acquire the skill. Otherwise, we've left them behind. So one way to, again, use that decision-making process to decide whole group versus small group is back to that model of what stage of mastery are they in. And just, again, focusing on that one skill and the stage that they're in with my goal as what do I need to do to get them to that next stage of mastery with this specific skill. And we're talking a matter of a few minutes sometimes, a couple days a week. Yeah. And when you're thinking about what's happening within those small groups, so let's say we've identified the skill that this small group uh, needs to have, and I pull those kids together, what does that instruction look like? Do we have to have a separate program to do that? Or like, what's the most effective way to use that time? So a lot of our students that are having difficulty are experiencing cognitive overload. And so the first thing we need to think about is how are we going to minimize that for them? And so introducing a new program is just adding to the cognitive overload. And that's because there's usually a different scope and sequence. There's usually different instructional routines. Sometimes even the language of the skill is different. So if we can set aside the idea of introducing a new program and instead focus our core instruction on how that language and how those routines could actually be intensified in that small group setting, we're going to minimize that cognitive overload. So the way that we want to approach that small group is I'm just focusing very specifically on what it is that brought this child to the teacher table at this moment. And is it a prerequisite skill that I need to go back and firm up that's standing in their way? Is it more feedback and structured practice that they need that's standing in their way? And again, if I can pinpoint what's holding them up, that becomes my lesson that I'm working on with that student or that group of students. So I don't actually need more materials. I can use what I used initially and just modify it. So I think that you just gave us a really good definition of an intensification And I think that idea of being intentional first, but also more intensity in instruction sometimes gets lost on teachers when they're doing that. How would you describe being really intense in that small group instruction? 
Well, it's funny because I think most people by design think small group naturally is more intense and it's not. It's not just being in a reduced setting that makes something more intense. It's doing something different that makes it more intense. So intensity can be increased by more practice and not all practice is equal. So oftentimes when we pull kids over to a teacher table, we give them what we call masked or blocked practice where they work on that one skill kind of in almost a a pattern-based word list, whether it's reading or spelling, but they really just work on that one thing, which is good, but we don't want to do it in a blocked way, which if I give you an example, let's say they're struggling with um, short vowel sounds and they're having difficulty with um, short E. So giving them a pattern-based word list that is just short E words is masked practice. So they're just, again, working on that one skill it feels like they're making progress and they'll feel like they're making progress too, but that's not intensity. Intensity would be interleaving those short E words in with things that they already know that they are somewhat have already mastered. Because when your brain works on something and then it intentionally has an opportunity to forget, which in a small group environment, and it's already just a few minutes of time, we can force forgetting by putting other content in between our targeted content. And so then every time I see that shorty word again, my brain has to work harder to retrieve what is that sound and sound that word out. That increases intensity. So increased effort is increased intensity. So again, one way is modifying the type of practice. Another way is increasing the amount of feedback. And so feedback doesn't mean you have to verbalize correct, correct, incorrect. (laughs) Feedback could be, you know, just being present and giving validation through silence or through nodding that that was a correct response. When they have an incorrect response, immediately providing the information that they need so that they can correct that mistake is another form of feedback. So those are the two most common and easiest ways to increase intensity. Hmm. It's interesting that you talk about that because it does feel like probably for a teacher and a student by practicing that short E in a whole list of words over and over and over and over and over again that you're getting someplace when in reality we're kind of going slow to build the foundation so that we can go fast later. Does that resonate? That's a great way to describe it. And that is that blocked practice and masked practice is really important in the acquisition stage, you know, because it's new and I do need lots of opportunity. Um, It's just kind of in a sport too, when you've got your drills that you're doing just to get that muscle memory going. So that's great. And it's good in that stage only, but it's not going to get us to that you know, later adaptation stage if we stay there. So yes, in order to get where we need to go, we have to force some difficulty, which means break that up once kids Mm. have gotten a level of accuracy and do your interleaving and then take those words and put them at a connected text passage that's been controlled so that they have to really think and retrieve it every time they encounter it. So we've been talking about sort of the small group. And I think one of the misconceptions people have is, small groups equals centers. Can you talk a little bit about the the differences between small group instruction and center-based? Yes. And part of that can be, I think, enhanced by just looking at the terms that you chose to use. 
So small group instruction is instructional. It's interactive. It's the teacher interacting, modeling, prompting, giving feedback to students. So typically, um, there's only one adult in the classroom at a time during this small group block. So that means the group at the teacher table is receiving small group instruction. Everybody else is at a center. So a center is independent. It is not instructional. What you're able to do at a center is typically practice concepts that you've already learned. So you would never want to put a student at a center activity and expect them to do their own learning because you've increased the chances that they're going to mislearn information and make errors or that they're just going to fake learning so that you don't interrupt them for behavior problems. (laughs) But centers are not active learning opportunities. They, again, are typically practicing fluency of a previously learned skill. So that's okay, but that's actually not going to have the return on investment that a teacher-led instruction opportunity is going to have. Mm, that's a that's a great uh, description there. Thank you for doing that. And mm-hmm. and I think we probably understand and get this like small group instruction concept. The way that you talked about being really intentional about the delivery of that has been great, but. You also sometimes talk about interventions delivered in the whole group instruction. That is a concept that can be mind-blowing to people. So you alluded to it at the beginning. I said we were going to come back to it. We're going to come back to it now. Like, how is it possible you can give an intervention to a whole group? Right. Well, first, I think we have to define what an intervention is. So an intervention is something that's very targeted. Um, It is very specific, and it's really data-driven. So in order for us to identify something that needs intervened on, we have data, whether it's formal data or informal observational data, we know something isn't working. So then our goal is to think about, well, what is it that we need to do to support that um, to move to the next level? Oftentimes, it's an activity that involves an explicit instruction model. I'm going to revisit through modeling. I'm going to make sure we do some guided practice together. I'm going to watch and give feedback. So that doesn't have to be done in only small group. In fact, our whole group instruction should be following that model anyway. But in order to make that instruction more productive than it was the first time that we taught it, we again have to think about other modifications. So increasing feedback. Maybe we introduce an instructional routine that requires more verbal prompts to remind students of the task that we're trying to ask them to do. Maybe we introduce visual prompts. But those are the types of things that we do in an intervention setting. Doing them only in small group isn't always something that we have to restrict ourselves to. It can be done in whole group. In fact, it's best to do it in whole group if lots of students need it anyway. And again, that's where looking to people like Anita Archer at how do you increase the opportunities to practice for kids in a large group setting? Well, you do choral responses. Um, How do you increase feedback? You immediately give them validation on their correct responses and you correct incorrect responses. Those can all be done whole group just as well as they can be done small group. And the reason we should be open to that model has to do with the amount of resources that we have available in our classroom. So let's say half of my kids need support on a specific skill. If I choose to address it in a small group setting, I'm probably going to have to repeat that same lesson three or four times. And if I do that same lesson three or four times in my small group block, I can't do much of anything else. 
And so the kids who have deficits that need to be addressed are going to get further and further behind because I no longer have an opportunity to work on what they specifically need. So anytime a skill is you know, really needed by a large group, I should consider doing it as a larger group intervention. And some would say, just to push back, well, what about the kids that already know it and don't need it? Isn't that unfair for them to have to sit through that instruction? Oh, that's a good point. So interestingly enough, there is a lot of research out there about the concept of overlearning. And what we know about overlearning is when you get that fluency down and that generalization down, you are more likely to accurately reach adaptation sooner. So it's not causing harm for the kids who have already learned that skill. Typically when I'm intervening, I'm intervening at acquisition and fluency anyway. And so getting them to the point of overlearning is just going to allow them to get to those later stages of development. If you do have behavior problems, which is always something to consider from a student who doesn't feel like the instruction is worth their time, Mm. then they can absolutely move over into a small group environment and do something different while you still intervene for the whole group. But again, overlearning is actually not causing any students harm. Mm. I love that description. and, And this makes me think that in a future episode, we should really unpack these four stages of, of mastery, because I think there's something, there's something to this in some ways that we can help teachers really understand the process you have to go through to really then be cemented in these skills and processes such that you can use them uh, in any environment that you're in. We might have to do a follow-up episode. What do you think about that? (laughs) Learning science is fascinating. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) And you don't actually know this, but some of the things that you're sharing now, we had just released an episode with the author of Make It Stick, where we're talking about these learning science things in general. And so this is going to be a great follow-up episode to sort of, yes. Oh my gosh, how cool is that? I know. And it was like, (laughs) it it, it was all really um, inspired by you and One thing I want to tell our listeners, well, a couple things. First of all, you've been alluding a lot to, uh, not alluding to, explicitly saying Anita Archer's name. And we have linked our listeners in show notes to um, Explicit Instruction, her book, right? And so all you're talking about here is really all that she outlines in her concept of explicit instruction. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, she is the go-to for what does explicit instruction look like and what does engagement look like. Yeah, I think it's great. And there are YouTube videos out there too um, that folks can find on that. But again, listeners, if you have not picked up that book yet, it is well worth your time to do that. I think we misunderstand what we mean by explicit instruction. And and it's fairly comprehensive. The other thing I want to shout out is You have recently done several webinars on this very same topic, including one for Mount St. Joseph University's Reading Science Center. And what we'll do is link listeners in the show notes to that as well so that they can actually see you and, you know, see some (laughs) some visuals um, as we go through this process, because I think it's really, really important. Um, I do want to ask you one more question, and that is... I know you work a lot with teachers in the classroom and that you've done a lot of work coaching teachers to help understand how this process works. Any stories come to mind 
of a before or after where it was a real aha for somebody? Oh, that's a really good point. Yes. So it really relates to one of the first questions you asked around observations and accountability and what principal expectations are. So I was working with a school where part of their teacher observation was a dedicated 60-minute small group instruction block, and the principal did the walkthroughs, and I was debriefing with the principal, and the principal said, so I'm not really sure why what I saw today has to be done in a small group setting. And in telling me more, what I heard was each lesson looked pretty much the same. There was a warm-up. There was a preview of the text that the kids were reading. They read the story. The comprehension questions were almost exactly the same. The only thing different was the title of the book. And he said, yes, that's exactly right. That's what the small group instruction typically looks like in, in many schools. But what did you see in this classroom? And it was the classroom that the teacher had been open to the idea of refining small groups. And what he said was, I didn't actually see small group instruction. I saw the teacher pulling kids over and giving them like a crash course and something that they needed. And then they moved on and then she called other people over and I don't really know what it was. It kind of felt like triage. It kind of felt like therapy. It kind of looked like madness and productive madness. And he said, and that's really what small group instruction should look like. So it was just funny that the description that he used was, it was a busy environment, everybody was getting what they needed versus the other one where there was quiet compliance, but everybody was still pretty much getting the same thing. It truly wasn't differentiated. And yet that's what we think is happening in small group is just because they're coming over, they're reading a different book, they're getting something different and they're not. Mm, That's a great example. And I love the words triage because that's really what we need to be doing in order to get our kids the skills and uh, that they need to have and close those gaps. It's, it's important, it's intense, and it should be priority work. So that's, that's a great story. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Anything that you want to add that we haven't talked about? I'd love to give you the space for that. Gosh, just encouraging to take little steps. Um, You know, I think when it comes down to defining what whole group and small group instruction should look like, you know, giving yourself grace to just try one little thing at a time, Um, but not to be afraid to challenge yourself. And when you mess up, it's okay. Just mess up again tomorrow in a different way. (laughs) Oh, that's encouraging. Are there any resources you would throw out there? Any advice for teachers, coaches, building administrators, anything that we haven't mentioned? In addition to Anita Archer's text, I would say perhaps look at um, Susan Hall's text about um, interventions and the top 10, I think, suggestions or steps, something like that. It does a really good job of helping support that conversation around how to use data. Great. We will also find that for our listeners and link that in the show notes. Well, Jamie Peevler, it's such an honor to talk to you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day because I know you're very busy and we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Jamie Peevler. Check out the show notes for links to more resources, including Jamie's recent webinar on maximizing the benefits of small group instruction. Science of Reading the Podcast is brought to you by Amplify. For more information on how Amplify leverages the science of reading, go to amplify.com ckla. Next time on the show, we're bringing you something special, our first ever episode recorded in front of a live audience.
I guess all of you listen to the podcast, right? Featuring the return of an all-time favorite guest, Kareem Weaver. The only sector that's thriving is the prison industry. They don't, they don't have enough beds. They got to outsource it now because business is booming. And the root cause of it is illiteracy. Whether we want to avert our eyes or not, it's there. That's next time on Science of Reading, the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.